This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Welcome to Retail Retold. Today we have Kim McCann of 1118 Architecture. Welcome to the show, Kim. Good morning. Kim, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your company does? Certainly. I am uh, Kim McCann. I am um, a partner with 1118 Architecture. We started 1118 in 2009, which Sounds absolutely crazy, but as it turns out to be one of the best uh, timed company starts, I think I could have imagined. Our business was founded um, primarily around the design of retail. Um, I'd worked in the retail industry for about 10 years prior to that with national uh, retailers directly as well as uh, developers. Uh, currently, 1118 is 25, um, a staff of 25. We're licensed in 26 states. Uh, we've kind of picked our states by anywhere that I could fly up for uh, public hearings and entitlement hearings and still get back in a reasonable amount of time. Um, 20, 25 staff, how many are architects? Uh, three licensed architects, but I do only hire um, degreed professionals. So everyone has got a degree in either architecture or interior design that work on my staff. Got it. Okay. And where are you guys based? We're based out of Orlando, Florida. And we've used you before. You guys are great. And we've used you in outside of the state of Florida. So you guys do a great job. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the state of retail architecture is. I think that's an interesting uh, place to begin. What's going on in retail architecture and retail design? Uh, What's on trend? What's happening? Certainly. Um, You know, retail has definitely evolved over the 20 years since I started um, working, you know, in this in this industry. And we used to do a lot of um, national retailer direct stores from, you know, a a rollout to redesigning prototypes and and pushing out into new markets. We found lately that a lot of the national retailers are turning it over to more um, the landlord to the developer to do uh, build outs for them rather than coming in with two separate architect, you know, like if we were the retail architect to the developer architect, they're kind of meshing that together more. So we're doing a little bit more of the complete project than what we've done in the past. And I I mean, that's a very positive trend in my mind, because it allows that gray area between what the developer is doing and what the 
tenant is doing to kind of mesh together so you don't have that weird line of who's taking what piece of that building. And so it used to be where there'd be, but doesn't, don't both parties in that scenario still need an, an a separate architect or no? There's one architect, the landlords and tenants architect is the same. Yeah, it's turning a little bit more into, so uh, for instance, um, um, uh, TJ Maxx companies, they used to, we used to do a lot more work um, as the tenant architect or the landlord architect. Now they're turning more into like a build to suit almost, a complete package. So the developer is turnkeying that project. So you don't have to have the two different architects, two different design packages, trying to get those two things to line up, which keeps that coordination effort a lot more clean. Sure. We've done a lot of those TJX deals in all concepts, concepts, home goods, Sierra, home sense. So familiar that, that, that they've moved to that. What are you seeing from design? What's happening in the design world? From the, well, I mean, primarily, um, a lot of the stores are getting smaller which you know is, is just a, a reaction to, to what's happening in, in retail overall. Um, but because they're getting smaller, they've got to be laid out in a very, very uh, special way um, that allows the person to be able to move through the store um, and see the merchandise uh, in, in a more complete package and faster than what we had to do before. I think over the last uh, 20 years, this has become more and more apparent. So the, the store planning side of each of those brands is becoming much more instrumental than they ever had in the past. And so one of the, what are some of the things they're doing to make the customer experience better from a store planning perspective? You mentioned visibility of merchandise and things. What are some things that a developer or retailer could do to make that you know happen what are some of those design elements that are actually being employed in the store sure i mean lighting is is a big deal lighting has always been um you know a primary um uh drive design driver in these and the the stores with the with the bust focus will bring the shopper from place to place and that can be done one through um, fixtures um, and layout of that, pathways, a nice circulation where you actually feel like you need to move around the entire store and not just hit the end caps that are, that are just positioned at the ends near the queue lines. And so it's that choreographed movement from the beginning to walk in to the exit that you try to get that person to move from right all the way around, circling around the store to the left side where they can queue back out. We're trying to take that short circuit out. Understood. That's that's really interesting. And what are developers doing and landlords doing from a shopping center design, whether that's a new build shopping center or an existing shopping center? What are they doing from design elements and, and from an architecture perspective? We found a lot more of the design um, from the shopping center standpoint to be uh, a more of a... Um, a tactile, like a texture experience than the traditional tilt wall flat, no, you know, that, that get in the store, move around and move back out. And so what they're trying to do and what we're seeing a lot of and what we're designing is that how to get people pulled into the center and to stay. 
So it's linear, we're using linear parks or pocket parks. We're using a lot of tactile design from the bench design, uh, integrating a smooth texture and then uh, reclaimed wood or, or um, something with a little bit more of a, um, of a texture. Uh, and we're finding that it's a, spending a little bit more money on those finishes that will get people to see your center before they see the, you know, the, the center down the street. Got it. What's what's going on in the color world these days? <laughs> so there's a couple <laughs> different schools of thought. It's interesting. Um, we have some clients that that are very into the monochromatic um, color palettes. And so you're seeing a lot of that kind of the grays and the blue color palettes. And then you have the other school of thought where it's like, let's see how bright we can get to, to attract that attention. Um, where we're finding is the, the more um, like monochromatic to um, um, neutral color palettes are becoming much more timeless where the trendier colors are the ones that we're coming back in and doing like facade remodels on pretty quickly. There, Those color palettes are lasting about three years or so before they become, you can say, that center was built in 2017. That was the color of that year. And so, um, you know, the trend of course, from a maintenance standpoint, would to try to move into a little bit more of a tiny color palette. I'm sorry, I missed that. What type of color palette? Timeless. Timeless. Got it. Color palette. What? So By the buildings you've seen them, and you can say, "Oh, that's a you know that's a 2008 design." You know, they use the rust color. Sure. What? What's? Give me. What are the, the? I guess the timeless are the neutral colors. Timeless. Is that what's timeless? That that's what we're seeing that, you know, they they hold you couldn't guess where they're, you know, what year they were built in. The only challenge with some of those timeless and they tend to be, I would find lighter colors. Is that fair? Um, they are a little bit lighter colors. Yeah. So lighter colors are harder to keep clean. But uh, I agree. I personally, I like the neutral. My house is grays and grayses and beiges. So, um, definitely, uh, it, it feels timeless to me. So, uh, very cool. Anything else going on in the, in the retail architecture, whether that's from the, the real estate shopping center or the retail design perspective, that's interesting today. Any, anything that's going on from a tech perspective, right. That, that affects your world. Uh, well, I mean, two different things. I mean, one, um, almost every community is is developing their own overlay districts and design standards. We didn't have that so globally before. And so now, um, you know, it's that constant response back to each community and, and what their design standards are um, that that is this next layer that's coming into it. Uh, a lot of the times it's a battle between the community um, cost and what the retailer will accept. And to get those three things to line up is, is, is a big job sometimes. Totally. That's a great point, right? When you mentioned the three things, the cost of the project, the community, and the retailer. From a retailer perspective, you have a brand that you're trying to create brand standards. And now this town wants you to change that to meet their design overlay. A lot of times the design you know, that the, the community wants is a cost that wasn't foreseen. And it's a it's a big challenge. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's 
that's the biggest thing. The signs are all the sign requirements are getting uh, more strict um, to get, um, you know, monument sign and monument sign space to building sign space and, and overall in the center to try to make all those pieces work with the overlay of what what that community is making you respond to um, is quite a puzzle. Are are the communities and the and the architectural review boards and all these groups, do they understand that, you know, these retailers need that brand presence and they need to have their prototypical stuff? Well, they may understand it, but they don't want it in their backyard. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I hope you're 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 getting all three sides to figure out how to coexist. Um, not an easy task. That's an interesting trend. Uh, we've, I've seen it and hadn't thought about it until you highlighted it. Are you seeing anything from either the property or the inside of a store because of tech there that's being installed that you need to change design? You know, it's interesting. That's an interesting question. That probably was true more so in the past than now. You know, now everything has become so much smaller. So the big, um, you know, POS stations and server closets that we needed and integrated sound and all of that, all of those components used to take up a lot of space that we would have to hide somehow in disguise, you know, where they would be accessible but not noticeable to, to the um, shopper where now all of those things are so tiny that those those big rooms and closets that we used to screen with all these different design elements aren't necessary anymore. Interesting. All right. Um, last question on design. I'm going to go to a, uh, one that's near and dear to a lot of listeners' hearts, I'm sure. The bathrooms and stores. What, what, what's going on these days? Do, do retailers want them in the front of stores? Are they in the back? You know, some there's some stores where you got to go through like this, these gray double doors, and it's like hidden in certain place. What's going on with the bathrooms? <laughs> that is a great question. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, well, there's a couple things that that are factors to that. One, almost every shopping center that's built, the uh, utilities are stubbed into the back, so the cost of bringing everything to the front, you know, there's a factor to that. So traditionally, the bathrooms are located in the back. One, you don't really want customers in your bathroom. But but don't a lot of but don't most stores have to have a public bathroom except for outside of an enclosed mall. But most open air retail centers they have to have a bathroom in the store, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and they've got to be accessible to the customer. Now, um, you know, defining accessible, they can't go through another space to get to the space. But they certainly could be in the back of the house area behind the big gray double doors, you know, um, and, uh, you know, there's there's um, a sad trend that that has happened and, and probably in the last 10 years, I've never seen it so much that, um, you know, planted customers are coming in to find those bathrooms and then um, ensuring that every component within those bathrooms were constructed uh, per the drawings um, and are ADA accessible. Um, yeah, that's, you know, it's a, it's a very sad trend that's happening and, and another layer to what retailers just do not need in our in our ever changing industry. Totally. So they're still more prevalent in the back of the store. Um, that's where you think because of costs, we can probably expect to find the bathroom 
in his store over the next few years. Definitely. All right. So moving on, you have an interesting story. Uh, You worked on the Whole Foods in Winter Park, Florida. Why why don't you tell us uh, about that, that store and how that became from your perspective? Well, the site um, was a existing junkyard for automobiles. So anytime you see all those automobiles that are all squashed up and, and I don't, not sure what happens to them from there, but they're just there. Yeah. My, my, when I was growing up, I went to a lot of those. My dad was a mechanic. So we would go to junkyards, find some parts, maybe resell the parts or use those parts. So I've been to a lot of junkyards. Yeah, so this would have been the perfect site for you. <laughs> you would know it just just the way it is. Um, the site did have an old barn that was probably constructed, you know, in the in the forties. That barn uh, was probably originally used uh, when it was farmland, and then it transitioned a couple times, and then turned into this automobile junkyard. It was on a road that has got exceptional traffic, um, and then. On top of that, it's in it's located in Winter Park, Florida. So if you're familiar with the outskirts of Orlando, Winter Park is one of those communities that um, that you want to be in. You know, it's got great residents, great shopping, um, about every restaurant that you could imagine. Most of them are located in Winter Park. So this site was kind of right on the intersection of um, two heavily traveled roads. The developer we were working with purchased the site and we started going through the overlay district and design criteria for Winter Park and developed what we thought was a um, unique design approach, something that was different, something that would stand out. Winter Park likes um, um, a lot of design diversity, you know, more so than say a um, Naples, Florida, where everything tends to look the same. They are, they are a little bit more into the design diversity. So we went in and started the process. And this is a really interesting story of how the community, the design, and the retailer all flashed. After our first planning and zoning meeting um, presenting the design, we learned, and this is one of those things that you always want to kind of go around and talk to the neighbors, and though the neighbors of this site um, there weren't any, it was all commercial areas, but everyone in Winter Park showed up, hundreds of people, including the news media, and were extremely offended that we were going to build what they called a 1970s shopping center because the, there was parking in front of the building um, and it would destroy the fabric of Winter Park uh, because we were going with a very modern design. Um, they wanted something, the, the residents wanted something uh, more like Florida Mediterranean. So as we went through the public hearing process, it got so heated that the police actually had to stand in the, in the room while we were presenting to keep people from essentially coming, you know, like getting in our faces, telling us how terrible we were. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Over a grocery store? Food that was taking a place of an auto salvage yard. It's crazy. It was crazy. It got so bad that by the last commission meeting, the police actually walked our design team out of the building into our cars so we could get to our cars safely. Absolutely the craziest process I've ever been in. 
And you know, when you have 200 people and they light the brooms on fire and they're all standing there with pitchforks chanting at you because you want to put a fantastic grocery in their neighborhood, it's just absolutely mind boggling. Would they, would they have rather it stayed a junkyard? Well, that was the big question we kept asking. And the answer is no, you know, and of course everyone is proclaiming that they will never shop at Whole Foods. They'll never, never, never go there. We actually had a Nordstrom rack that we were designing on that site as well as, you know, a habit and a cafe Rio and, and it's a great site. And it, you know, it, we fronted the build, we fronted the main road with buildings and parked in the middle. And so it really was a good, a good site plan, but they just did not want it. But the most interesting thing about it on opening day, all of these people showed up to shop, you know, and you're just like, oh, why? Why did we have such a hard time with this? So when, this is fascinating. So you go for approval and unbeknownst to you, hundreds of residents show up for this place that's already a commercial area and they oppose it because you're going to destroy the fabric of the community, so they think. and were you and so what happened after that did that meeting obviously did you guys table it did you move forward in that meeting what did you do at that point point? well we tried to move forward for about two hours and then realized we abandoned it and decided that it just needed to be tabled for now um you know and then we did back up and we did our you know community outreach meetings and 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 went around to different residents and tried to get their ideas of what they would want but the difference of this is you know, the same thing, the pull of what Whole Foods needs, which is a field of parking where people can park and go into the into the grocery store um, and what what people thought they wanted, you know, which is this very ultra urban site, extremely dense, you know, um, and, and you just can't that just doesn't work in reality. You know, you've got to be able or it doesn't work in Winter Park, Florida, because you can't afford to put in parking structures and make that density. So what did what did they what did they what were they actually trying to go for? They were wanting one, the building to not be modern. You know, they wanted the building to be like Floridian. Floridian yeah. And then they wanted the buildings to be. Um, pushed all the way up to the road and no parking fields. They said that everyone did that in the seventies and that that is, should not be allowable anymore. So it looked like a mini city. Is that what they were going for? City. Yeah. Yeah. In winter park, Florida. Wow. Okay. And so that's what they wanted. And so after, after this crazy meeting where hundreds of people showed up, you then table it, you go back and you start a community outreach. Why don't you explain to everyone what community outreach is? Because I don't know that all the listeners know, because uh, that's interesting. Sure. Um, so what we try to do is we try to group uh, when we set these meetings up and we know that it's going to be a, a highly political um, uh, project is you set up these small groups and you try to separate out the groups with different interests, because what you don't want is the gang effect, which is what happened to us in that first meeting. And so you try to quarantine these different groups with these different interests and you allow them to tell you what their perfect scenario of the project would be and you see if there's anything from those meetings that you could actually integrate into the plan that would work for the developer would work for the retailer so you go through these series of meetings and at the end um, you have altered either the design or the site plan or maybe not much of anything maybe you've just 
increased awareness among these groups. So the idea is the next time you go into the public forum, you can start your presentation by that you met with the different groups. This is how your plan changed in response to their wants and needs. This is why you couldn't change the plants in response to their wants and needs. And it, it kind of starts that presentation off with uh, heading off any of the negative comments on, on what you, why you could do it or why you couldn't do it. And so it sets the floor a little bit more um, to the, either the planning and zoning commissioners or the city commissioners on why the project is what it is. And so how many meetings were there after that first, as you called it, pitch fourth meeting? <laughs> um, we did four community outreach meetings. Uh, and then we went back to planning and zoning and the pitchforks came back out because there wasn't everything, you know, we couldn't do everything that they wanted, but um, we did make it through that planning and zoning and subsequent made it through the city commission, even though they just got a little bit more heated and heated each meeting. Um, you know, and I understand what they wanted, but you have to understand that they are the users of this store and they still need to be able to go from their car with a grocery cart, you know, into a store and back out and be able to leave the site. And so once, and a lot of times people don't like change, even if it was, you know, an eyesore to the community, they just don't like change and you just have to have, you know, change just has to happen. And so what was, so where were those community outreach meetings done? Were they at town hall? Um, well, different places. So, um, you know, traditionally what we try to do is meet people away from their own um, places of comfort. So, you know, you could meet at, um, at a library, you could meet at a lot of times they've got, um, you know, a lot of the different um, restaurants or community rooms or elk lodges or, um, you know, VFW. You just try to get people out of there comfort zone and out of their setting into somewhere else where you can have a real conversation with them. Got it. Meetings were actually happening at City Hall. And how long between the first pitchfork meeting and then the second meeting where you got approval to go to the city commission? 60 days. 60 days. And so you go to the second meeting, you get approval. And then the next step is you go to the city commission. Yep, and then so you've got two readings normally at the city commission for a project, you know, like this, or a lot of projects as they go through the process. Um, your first reading is, um, is, you know, normally again, everyone will come out and say the same thing that they said at planning and zoning, again, at city commission, if, if they don't feel like they have enough resolution to that. And then the second reading is a little bit more, um, uh, calm normally traditionally because if it's been approved already in the first reading second reading just gives everyone 30 more days or 15 more days depending on that jurisdiction to get their thoughts together and make sure that that this project should go forward fascinating and so the when you did this process you mentioned the community outreach were you talking you know did you feel like in general the totality of the town wanted it and was Whole Foods, even though this group of people were concerned, was Whole Foods concerned about, wow, you know, because I remember back in the day when Walmart was opening all these stores, you know, there was always this tug and pull of, 
people didn't want them coming in because they would hurt small business. But then once they came in, they were going to have to have these people be consumers to be successful. Was Whole Foods concerned that the people wouldn't shop them? No, I don't think so. I mean, this is, it's, um, there was, there's, there was currently a Whole Foods in Winter Park. They were actually going to, this was a relocation. So they already knew that they had a good customer base there. And if you're for a project, if, if you are a neighbor that is excited about a project or for a project or neutral of a project, you don't show up at these meetings. And yeah. so it, they're very lopsided. And the perception can be when you have 200 people hating the project, you have to remember that there are, you know, it's a town of 60,000 people, you know, so it's a very small percentage, although it feels very huge when you're standing in that room. Um, it's a great story. Anything else about that story that we should touch on? Because uh, really interesting of how that Whole Foods ended up in Winter Park, where it did. Yeah, no, and the, you know, the most interesting thing about the project was, um, you know, was how it, how we actually got to the point where we could start the, the, the design process, you know, because all of that process really happens before you put together the construction drawings, you know, and things like that. But we actually did take the old barn on the site and repurpose the barn into the building. So the site, you know, Whole Foods is, is very, um, very interested in how they can reuse, readapt, and be the most energy efficient building, you know, around. And so we did a lot of really cool, fun things for them uh, on this building um, you know, that, that made it special. Got it, I haven't, I haven't been there. Does it look like a barn today? No, no, it's, it's, um, it's pretty modern. It's got a, a really big curved canopy out front. Um, all of the wood uh, is used um, in the canopy. It's used on um, little places on the facade. And then it's used in the interior for uh, the produce. You know how they do the produce bins? Sure. Very cool. Well, that was a fantastic story. Really appreciate it one of the more uh, different ones we've had on this show. So thank you for sharing. We are now going to move to the last part of our show called Retail Wisdom. Are you ready, Kim? I'm ready. All right. So it's three questions. I think you know the questions. Question one, best piece of commercial real estate advice out there for everybody. Know your surroundings, I guess, as you're as you're looking at different sites, you know, um, basically based on this story, know who your oppositions are going to be. Have an understanding when you're setting your performa and your schedule, what hurdles you're going to come across in getting there, you know, so you don't have outrageous delays or 30, 40, you know, um, days where you're just sitting there um, and regrouping or having to you didn't account on having special meetings or going through the variance process. Awesome. Very, very sage advice. All right. Question two, fan favorite. <laughs> Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead. Uh, you know, I think this is kind of that nostalgia question. Um, you know, um, I miss, I miss walking up and down the, the, uh, the blockbuster movies. It's not the same whenever you have to scroll through the movies as if you could walk up and down the aisle and pick your movie and be reminded to rewind. 
Be kind, please rewind. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't heard that one in a while. (laughs) Kind of a nostalgia. I can't promise you I would actually go, but man, I really miss those days. (laughs) That would be a, uh, that's a, a a phrase I miss for sure. So um, we have had a, a few people say blockbuster and, and, and with, and with, um, the whole entertainment realm and TV will make the third question something like that. So you, you talked about scrolling through, uh, and you know, with everything going on in the world today and COVID-19 and a lot of people being home, it's probably a little bit more TV watching. And I don't know about you somehow in my house, remote controls disappear. They get eaten by couches. They get, they are, they end up in drawers that no one knows how they got there. And so right now, the third question, I am looking at the Amazon Alexa voice remote. What is the retail price for those whose couch eats their remote and need to get a new Amazon Alexa voice remote? The second generation remote. What is that retail for? Oh my gosh. Um, I have to say that is definitely not my department in our household. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad. Close. $29.99. But thank you for playing. And this has been um, an awesome interview. I really, really appreciate the story and the cool insights on Uh, the retail architecture trends. Thanks for coming on, Kim. How can, if anybody out there wants to get in touch with you, how can people find you? Well, you could find me at, uh, our website is 11, the word spelled out, 18, the numbers, architecture.com, 1118architecture.com. Awesome. Well, Kim, it's been great. Stay safe, stay healthy. Keep rocking on. Um, Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.